Thanks for joining our expository Bible study at Truth Matters Church. Continuing our study of Revelation and the seven seals, today we look at the opening of the third seal and the rider on the black horse. Using scripture as our guide, we find a very fascinating truth about this prophecy that is ignored by most commentators. If you've missed any part of our study so far, catch up anytime at truthmatterschurch.org. Here is Pastor Alex. So we will be continuing our study and journey in the book of Revelation. And we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. And the title of our message is what the vision is. It's the third seal, rider on the black horse. In our last study, we covered and concluded the second seal and the rider on the red horse. And in our last study, uh, one of the loose ends that I tied up is putting a geographic location on these seals because if we don't have anything to ground us when it comes to trying to understand a vision or prophecy, then we can be all over the map, all over the globe. So one of the things that we took care of and made sure we tied up some loose ends was this approach. If we're studying a vision and prophecy, and if there's no location referenced, no geographic location referenced, then by default, we're going to be Israel-centric. So we're going to be in that part of the land, in that part of the world, and that people. And that happens to be the case with seals one and three, which we will be covering today, at least seal three. And if a vision or prophecy goes beyond that land, then, and it expands outside of Israel, then we're going to allow that vision to expand outside of Israel. And in our last study, we summarized the riders on the first two horses and the first two seals. We had the rider on the white horse having a bow, crown, and went out conquering. And then on the second seal, a rider on a red horse was summoned, and he had authority to take peace, and he had a great sword. And I likened the first two horses of the first two seals. I called them like a tag team. They're like tag team partners, meaning... One, the rider on the white horse is going out with a bow, crown, conquering, and to conquer. And you also have the red horse who's taken the peace and also given a great sword, resulting in bloodshed. So they're working cohesively, like a tag team. And again, before, um, I mean, as far as their influence and work, it would begin with Israel first, and then it can trickle out. To the rest of the nations. And when we try to take our learnings from the first two seals and try to incorporate it in our great Olivet Discourse clock, here's where the first two seals fell within this great Olivet Discourse clock. So from Epic 3 and 4, where you have the Israeli wars, where basically Israel has a target on their back, and that has always been the case from their destruction in 70 AD forward. They've had a target on their back from many nations, many enemies. Uh, And part of that doing is the activity from these first two riders, the rider on the white horse and the first seal, and then also the rider on the second horse and the red or uh, the second seal or the red horse. So the first two seals on this clock would fall more naturally on Epic 3 and Epic 4 because it implicates Israel and then it also implicates the Gentile nations. And that brings us to today's study. We're going to be looking at the third seal and the rider on the black horse. Here's what we're going to find. When we read this vision, there's more to this vision that meets the eyes, meaning when you, if you read it just at the surface, especially in our English translation, you're not going to get anything. But what we're going to do is we're going to stay disciplined and we're going to do the same guiding. We're going to operate by the same guiding principles. We're not going to run the commentaries. We're going to run to the scripture and see what the scripture can help show and teach us. And then we'll see where we land. So without further ado, let's read or reread our entire passage of the four horsemen in verses one through eight. 
And then we'll pick things up in the third seal in verses 5 and 6. So let's begin our reading of our text today. Again, it's Revelation 6. I'll be beginning in verse 1, reading from the NAS. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat in it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat in it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat in it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. There we have this vision of what we call the four horsemen. And it corresponds to the first four seals that are broken in this vision. But let's begin now to exposit verse 5 and the third seal. John said there, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat in it had a pair of scales in his hand. In the beginning of verse 5, it says, When he broke, he, of course, is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, when he broke the third seal, as we're following these visions, they're continuing to happen sequentially, which is why we're continuing to allow the first vision to happen first, followed by the second vision, followed by the third vision. That doesn't mean that they don't overlap as they move forward, but at least as far as the order and the sequence of things, this is how it flows in sequence chronologically. I want to remind us of the setting here. Our Lord was the one that was found worthy to take this sealed, scrolled book out of the Father's hand who was sitting on the throne. And since he was found worthy, not only did he take the scroll, he began to break each of these seals. And we are now at the third seal of this this sealed, scrolled book. What were his contents again? Yeah. Mourning, lamentations, and woe. So we know that when these seals are broken, the theme that's going to follow is there's going to be mourning, lamentations, and woe. And we are now at the third seal here. And in the scene in heaven, there was the throne. There was 24 thrones around the throne. There was 24 elders who sat on the throne In front of the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And then there was four living creatures around the throne. And each one of these four living creatures is the one who's making the summons of these riders on horses. So now the third of the fourth living creature made a summon and said, come. And John said after the summon, he looked and behold a black horse should be no surprise to us that these different colored horses differentiates them from one another. It's different from the white horse, and it's different from the red horse before it. And when the summon happened, there was someone who sat on it. And we learned, and we know that that refers to another angel. So we have, up to this point in the vision, three horses that were summoned And we had three different riders on each of these different horses. And I want us to look at verse 5 more closely, in in particular, the black horse and the pair of scales in his hand. As far as black horse, and what I did was I went through my commentaries that I have in my library, 
And I wanted to get a flavor of what are the common teachings out there as to what this black horse means or how it's to be interpreted. And this might sound familiar to many of you. Some teach that this black horse implies sadness and want because it's black and dark and gloomy. It symbolizes mourning, woe, and darkness. Well, that's not necessarily not accurate because we know that whatever happens, it's lamentations, mourning, and woe. So they're saying, well, the black horse symbolizes mourning, woe, and darkness. No, I'll say the other three horses too symbolize mourning, woe, and darkness. Uh, Some teach that, oh, the black horse means dark clouds of ignorance and superstition. Here's one. The scarcity of true Christianity. Somehow they see a black horse and that means there's no Christians to be found. But this is the most popular. And I can tell you that I've had a bent towards this one. That the black horse means famine. Well, Let's hold that for now, but that's the most popular. And then as far as the pair of scales, here are some common teachings as to what this pair of scales is or means. Some say that, well, it, it's a measuring of grains and their prices, like balance the scales. You're weighing commodities, and in this case, grains and their prices. Some teach that, well, no, it's spiritual to mean the deprivation of daily bread or a scarcity of provisions, but also a lot of common teachings out there is the pair of scales and the black horse collectively and together. It means famine again. But what does the scripture say? So here's what I want us to do. We're going to look at the original, the Greek, and then we're also going to look at the Old Testament. And we're going to see what does the scripture have to say concerning the black horse, and the pair of scales. But first, the pair of scales. The pair of scales is zugas. And zugas means yoke. And the root word of zugas, and I can't say this Greek word, I'll spell it Z-E-U-G-N-U-M-I, it means to join. Zugas is used six times in the New Testament. If you were to ask the question, well, what's the Hebrew equivalent word of zugas? It's ol in Hebrew. And ol is used 50 times in the Old Testament. So as far as zugas and ol, the Bible collectively uses this word 56 times. Do we all know what a yoke is? A yoke is a, call it contraption or an equipment put on your neck or put on necks. And here's an example of what that looks like. That's a yoke. That's a zugas. That's an ol in the Old Testament. Guess what I did? I looked at all 56 references of zugas in the New Testament and ol in the Old Testament. And yoke, it can be taken literally or figuratively, depending on context. So I want us to go through some of those examples in the Old Testament to give us an idea of Ol and Zugas, as well as examples from the New Testament, and then seeing, okay, what does that tell us about this vision? So as far as Ol in the Old Testament, yoke may mean to be a slave. So for example, when Jacob stole Isaac's blessing from Esau, Part of that blessing was making Jacob Esau's master, and that's in Genesis 27. But as part of this prophecy in Genesis 27, it's spoken of there's going to come a time when Esau breaks the yoke from his neck. And I want to read us that in Genesis 27:40. By your Esau's sword you shall live, and your brother Jacob you shall serve, become slave. But it shall come about when, when you, Esau, becomes restless, that you, Esau, will break his, Jacob's, yoke, all from your neck. So here's what happened. I think we all know the story from the Old Testament. When Esau was famished from whatever he did that day, 
Jacob made some you know, stew, soup. And he said, give me some of that. Esau asked his brother, and he said, well, sell me your birthright. He's like, what good is my birthright? I'm about to die. Sell me your birthright. Fine. And the scripture says, so Esau despised his birthright. And then when the time came when Isaac wants to give his blessing because the way God operated in the Old Testament, it went from word of mouth or by the spoken word, you should say. It went from when God chose Abram or Abraham and he promised to make him a great nation. Then he chose Abram or Abraham and he made this, he entered into this covenant. And then when Abraham was about to die, he wanted to pass the blessing on and it went to Isaac. That's why Isaac is the, prom- the promised one of the blessing. And then when Isaac was about to die, he's ready to give his blessing, and he wants to give it to his favorite son, Esau, who loved the game. So the time came when he's ready to give that blessing, and he said, you know, Esau, go ahead and hunt me some game. You know, make me my favorite dish, and I'm going to give you my blessing. Jacob's mom heard it, said, hurry up. Um, your dad's about to give the blessing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook it up for you. But here put some camel, because he was a hairy man, he goes, put on his clothes and put on, he put some uh, skins on him or some hair, try to get away as impersonating Esau. And then Jacob came and said he was Esau, gave the stew that his mom made, and Isaac was questioning, are you really my son Esau? Because his eyes are weak and he's towards the end of his life. And he said, yeah, it's me. And then after he had the, the, the meal, and he gave the blessing. Part of that blessing, I mean, the blessing went to Jacob, but part of that blessing was also Esau is going to serve Jacob, meaning Esau is going to have a yoke on his neck, and he's going to serve his brother as part of that blessing. But in that example, Esau had a yoke placed on his neck for losing out on that blessing, and as such, he was subject as a slave to Jacob. But the prophecy says the time is going to come when Esau is going to get tired of it. He's going to break off, his, break off the yoke because he's going to become restless and no longer be under Jacob. So that's an example of old. It means to be a slave. Here's another example in the Old Testament where yoke means to be a slave. When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, it says God broke the bars of their yoke. Leviticus 26, 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you will not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke, all and made you walk erect. Now I try to look and try to Google, you know, what, <laughs> when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt for those 400 plus years, what was the, on their necks? I couldn't find anything because it's that old. But following our disciplines and rules of engagement, when they were slaves, they had something on their neck as they were working, uh, and, and they were working under Egyptian rule. And the Lord says, he is the one who broke the yoke, even literally take, taking them out of bondage and led him out of Egypt through Moses and Aaron, as we know. But here, yoke, it means to be a slave. Yoke, ol, also means, or can mean, to be taken captive. So one of the consequences of Israel's disobedience was to be overtaken by their enemies and taken captive. And this is described as God placing an iron yoke on their necks. Deuteronomy 28, 48. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck to be taken into captivity until he has destroyed you. And this is consistent with um, after Judah was taken into captivity, God was described as breaking the yoke of the king of Babylon to allow the exiles of Judah to return. Jeremiah 28.4, I am also going to bring back to this place, to Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon in captivity, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke, the old, of the king of Babylon. 
So when the people of Israel were taken into captivity, or whether it be in Egypt, or they weren't taken into captivity into Egypt, but when they were enslaved in Egypt and they were taken into captivity here to the king of Babylon, it's described and likened to God placing an iron yoke on their neck, but also it is the Lord who is going to be the one who's going to break that off their necks and bring them back to their land. And then the, there is a couple of other examples of yoke or ol in the Old Testament. So yoke, depending on context, it can mean heavy labor, burden, or oppression. So here's one example. So after Rehoboam was made king, so Rehoboam was the one who succeeded his father Solomon, all Israel asked him to lighten their heavy yoke, their labor, and in return, they will serve him. I don't know if you guys remember this story. When Rehoboam ascended to the throne and all Israel was ready to make him king, then the people asked him, saying, hey, look, your father Solomon, he really drove us really hard in heavy labor. He's like, lighten that up and we will serve you. Rehoboam says, I'll get back to you. So he went to get counsel. So the elders who were there that, um, that counseled Solomon said, if you listen to them and lighten their load, they will serve you forever. But if you don't, they will turn against you. And then he also had some of the younger friends. And he asked their counsel, and he's like, oh, they, they're asking you that? He goes, oh, you think my, my dad was tough? He's all, I'm going to be tougher. So the the moral of that story was Rehoboam, he listened to the foolish advice given by the younger group. But in that example, the request was they had a heavy yoke. They were had heavy labor and burden and oppression. Solomon was busy making himself great. He was building things. He had a lot that he wanted to accomplish, and he didn't do it on his own. He did it off the backs of people. So he worked them really to expand his kingdom and his greatness. But there, the yoke that they were carrying was heavy labor, burden. You could even say oppression in this case by a king. And then one last example in the Old Testament. Yoke can quite literally mean the actual yoke that's placed on an animal or let's say a cattle or oxen, let's say to plow a land. And an example of that in Numbers 19.2, speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer, heifer in which no defect and on which a yoke, ol, has never been placed on the neck. So it can mean an actual yoke placed on the neck of cattle. So those are examples of ol in the Old Testament. Are you kind of getting an idea now? I'm trying to help us understand what the scripture has to tell us about yoke because the rider on the black horse had a yoke on his hand so we're trying to look to scripture what does this mean and we're looking at the old testament and new testament and we just looked at the old but here are some examples in the new here's what yoke may mean depending on context the burden of observing the tradition of men and works We're all familiar with this passage. When Jesus made this great invitation in Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my zugas, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, zugas, is easy, and my burden is light. We're all familiar with that invitation, right? Well, in this passage, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden is fortizo. And heavy laden means to be weighed down. To be weighed down. So, to be weighed down with what? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of self-help material out there and using this verse saying, well, you're being weared out, weighed down by the cares of this world, whatever that might be. Well, apparently, our Lord had something more specific in mind. And in Jesus' day, the lawyers weighed down men with works too hard to bear. 
And here's an example in Luke eleven forty six. But he, Jesus, said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weighed down fortizo with burdens hard to bear. What did lawyers do in Jesus' day? They take, they take the law. They're the experts of the law. And let's say the law says, do these five things. They said, oh no, do these 50 things. And you must follow all 50. That's an example of what these lawyers did. They had traditions and they added to Scripture because they were experts. And in doing that, they're teaching the people of Israel, oh yeah, you have to follow the law of Moses, and by the way, you thought it was five things. Actually, it's 500 things. How can they carry that? That's too much to bear. That's fortizo. You're weighing them down. Because our Lord says, while you yourself will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So in this example, zugas means the burden of observing the tradition of men and works. This is consistent with other examples in the New Testament. Yoke also means the burden of observing the law and works. So when we get to Acts, and the gospel is starting to gain traction through the Acts of the Apostles, what happened was, so let's say you had some Jews hear the gospel and they believe. And they're now Messianic Jews. They believe, not only are they Jewish, but they also believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, there were some Jews from Judea, they were trying to persuade them that, oh, in addition to believing in Jesus as Savior, you also need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. So this caused a disturbance even among the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. So what they did was, they are like, okay, well, I, here, I have the gospel that I received, Paul. He's like, let me go up to Jerusalem and let me bring the gospel that was given to me before their attention. And, the, and to answer the question, is it by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it faith plus works of the law? So they had a council in Jerusalem. And here was the outcome, and Peter spoke here, and James also, but here's what, here's what Peter had to say. He goes, now therefore, why do you put the test by placing upon the neck of disciples a yoke, a zugas, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's talking about observing the law and works. He goes, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are also. So zugas, in this example, means the burden, the yoke of observing law and works. And not only is yoke associated with the burden of law and works, tradition of men, but also zugas or yoke means to make one a slave to works. So in Galatians 4, Paul made a contrast between Sarah, free woman born of the promise, and Hagar, the, bond wo- the bondwoman, born of the flesh. In other words, in Paul's contrast, Hagar was born of the flesh. In other words, she is works, you can say. In Galatians 5, that's why he says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke, zugos, of slavery. And that means to be relying on works to be accepted. So that's pretty clear. If anyone is going to take on the yoke or burden of trying to follow the law and works to be accepted before God, you are being enslaved to works. Paul says, don't do that. Don't be subject again to that. And this is more applicable to the people of Israel. The works that you are doing, and this is the writer of Hebrews, those are the elementary things of Christ. Those are dead works. Meaning, not by observing the festivals in and of itself, by your performance will you achieve rest and salvation. But instead, it is by resting in the finished work of Christ. Because that was a shadow of the things that is to come. So their yoke means to make one slave to works. And one last example. Yoke, 
Zugas can also mean slaves in general. So similar to the Old Testament, it may refer to a slave and master relationship. And I want to reference 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote there, All who are under the yoke, Zugas as slaves, are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken of or be spoken against. So back in Paul's day, there were slaves, and slaves were owned by masters. So figuratively, if a slave was owned by a master, the slave wore, or had a, was a yoke. He, he was a slave to his master. So it described a slave to a master relationship. So yoke can just mean a slave of someone. So here's my case in point. Why did I go through it? So I went through all 56. Not once in the entire Old Testament, nor in the New Testament, did yoke, ol, or zugos ever mean scales or the balancing of scales. Not once. Not once. Rather, depending on context, here's a summary of what, here's our choices to be enslaved, to be taken captive, to be made subject to heavy labor, burden, and oppression, or the burden of circumcision, being a slave to works. It could describe a slave-to-master relationship, or it could describe a yoke being placed on oxen. Yoke. Zugas. Ol. Which means that this common depiction... As to what pair scales is or means, including the measuring of grains and their prices, scarcity of provisions, spiritually mean deprivation of daily bread, or famine, doesn't pass the test. This is wrong. But yet, this is what's out there. I mean, this is the most common. So here's my conjecture. I want to make a conjecture here. First of all, I'm not a fan as to why Zugas was translated pair of scales in many of our English translations. I'm not a fan of pair of scales. Here's what I, this is a guess. If you were to ask me, well, why was pair of scales, how did it make its way into our English transliteration of zugas? Possibly personal bias. You're coming in thinking famine, and with famine, there's going to be a rationing or some sort of measuring of food. So that's where pair of scales come in. But as I mentioned, if Scripture never, not once, used yoke, zugas, or ol to mean scales or measuring of anything, I'm not going to make an exception. And I'm not going to argue for that. So what's the right answer? What does the yoke in the writer's hand mean? So to help answer this, I want to go continue to stay in the Old Testament, and I want us to look at Black Horse, because... This rider on the black horse had a yoke. So what does scripture have to tell us about black horse? I'll say this. If you were to do a word search and you did black horse singular or black horses plural, only twice in the entire Bible was there black horses anywhere. One in Revelation 6 verse 5, our immediate verse. But also... There is one, and you probably guessed it, in Zechariah, verse, uh, chapter 6. I reference Zechariah 1 to help us understand that the different colored horses corresponds to angels riding them who were sent out to patrol the earth and, given, and were given a specific task. But when you go to Zechariah 1, where they had, a different, they had different colored horses referenced there, None of them were black. But when you get to Zechariah 6, there was four chariots or four sets of colored horses. And there was one of those sets that were black. So I want to read that passage. Because we have a black horse here, Zechariah 6. There was a chariot of black horses there. So what can we learn from that? So I'm going to read Zechariah 6 and verses 1 through 8. And in this part of the book, Zechariah sees in vision four chariots. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1. 
Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? The angel replied, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to patrol the earth, and he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Now, what I want to do, well, first of all, I want to make a comparative contrast here. So remember, in Zechariah 1, Zechariah 6, and Revelation 6, this is what they have in common. They have several different colored horses ridden by angels. But none of these passages lends itself to mean anything spiritual or symbolic. Rather, the different riders on the different horses were given specific tasks to perform. Are you, are, you, are you following me? Meaning, the black horse doesn't mean, it's not something just figurative or symbolic. That black horse and the rider on it had a specific task, and the color of black corresponds to what that task is. And I'm trying to find out, okay, well, what was the task of these black horses on this second chariot had in mind because they're the same color? I do want to call, I want to go back to our passage, and I want to call attention to the second chariot, the one with black horses in Zechariah 6. So the second chariot were a set of black horses, and that's in verse 2. And when Zechariah sees these four sets of chariots, four different colored horses, there was an angel there that was speaking with him, and Zechariah asked him, what are these, my Lord? And the angel replied, he said, these are the four spirits angels or angelic beings of heaven. And they were going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth. Okay, where are these black horses going? And I'm going to highlight it. To the north country. Right there in verse 6. So in Zechariah's vision of these four chariots, on these four different colored horses, the second set of those chariots, these black horses, they were commanded to go to the north country. Okay, what's the north country? Here's what I believe. I believe that this is a clue. This rider on the black horse is going to target somewhere. And in this case, since the black, char the, the black chariot of horses went north, when this rider on the black horse is summoned... In Revelation 6, I'm inclined to say he's going to go north too. Because if the black horses went north in Zechariah 6, then the black horse in Revelation 6 will be sent there too. And with that, we just need to determine where is this north country. And I want to cross-reference uh, Jeremiah 16. You notice we're in the Old Testament a lot? And sadly, I mentioned this before, a lot of teachings of Revelation, you're not pulling in rarely any, if at all, Old Testament. We're pulling in all Old Testament to try to understand this. So if the, where is this north country? And I, wanna, I, I want Jeremiah 16 to help us answer that. And I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their land, which I gave to their fathers. So in this passage, the land of the north is where Israel was banished. Where were they taken into captivity at the fall of the divided kingdom? Where were they taken into captivity? No, uh, at least ancient what? Babylon. Who was before Babylon? Assyria. Remember, there was 
The north kingdom went first, and that was under Assyrian rule. And then Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity, and that was where Daniel was part of those deportations. But the answer, ancient Assyria and Babylon. So here's a deduction. The only other time a black horse was ever mentioned in all of the Bible is in Zechariah 6. And in Zechariah 6, that chariot of black horses rode to the north country or land of the north, and Jeremiah 16 points us to ancient Assyria and Babylon. And this is my deduction. I'm going to keep the vision of Revelation 6 and this rider on the black horse towards ancient Assyria and Babylon. And where does that fall? In today's map, and you might remember this, it's been way back when we did the Daniel vision. And in our study of the four great beasts, and this first beast uh, was like a lion with eagle's wings, and we looked at all of Scripture, and guess who was called a lion? Ancient Assyria and ancient Babylon. Meaning, if this rider on the black horse, or at least the chariot we know, went to the northern country, and I'm saying that the rider on the black horse is going to go to the northern country, and that would be ancient Assyria or ancient Babylon, then geographically, where that horse would fall, somewhere north up there, the rider on the black horse. I'm going to speak a little bit more on that when we close, but now let's exposit our second and final verse. Verse 6, And I heard something like the voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So we're going to approach verse 6 like we did in verse 5. I want us to look at common interpretations, and then we're going to go to Scripture. So as far as the third seal and the black horse, when it speaks of the wheat, barley, oil, and wine, they'll say, well, it's staple foods in those times, and barley was cheaper than wheat usually, important, and it was important for the poor. Oil is essential for cooking, and wine or juice was a solution for drinking water from old wells. And staying consistent with that, oh, because of the zugos, but they translated pair of scales, it was the prices of the wheat and the barley and the oil and the wine. Or, you know, there's some, you know, some teachings that says, oh, you know, a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley, it means scarcity. Uh, in a time of famine or a denarius, a day's wage, ordinary times, um, in ordinary times, a denarius bought 12 to 15 times as much food. Or when it says, do not harm the oil and the wine, they'll say oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, wine is symbolic of the blood of Jesus, God is still working, Bible is preserved, faithfully copied, attempts at reformation. It's like all over the place. But the gist is, they'll continue to make this spiritual only. But here's my rebuttal. Most of that teaching is not supported by the original language, nor in the Old Testament. Here's what I think happened. Someone's reading the Bible. They're reading it in English. They're not even reading from the original, let's say, New Testament Greek or Old Testament Hebrew and, and whatever the manuscripts are, if, if it's written in Aramaic. They're just reading it in English. Like, oh, my English says pair of scales. And oh, here, uh, you, know, uh, bar, you know, there's a wheat and barley for this much. Oh, famine, scarcity of food, blah, blah, blah. That's what I think happened. So we, we can't just rely on interpreting and understanding Scripture in our language. We need to dig deeper, like what we're doing. So one last time, what does the Scripture say, or where does it point us to? So let's look at the original. First of all, a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Quart is choinix. It means a dry measure. So a quart of wheat is better rendered a dry measure of wheat. And three quarts of barley is better rendered three dry measures of barley. Here's what's interesting. You know choinix, dry measure? It's approximately a quart, approximately a liter, approximately. So when it says a quart of wheat, that's not accurate. It's really an approximate quart of wheat. But yet our English translation says it in the definite, it's a quart of wheat. No, it's a choinix. A dry measure, and a dry measure is approximately a quart. <laughs> so even our English translation isn't 
fully accurate by saying a quart of wheat. Anyhow, both dry measures, they cost the same. One dry measure of wheat, which is approximately a quart, costs one denarius. Three dry measures of barley cost one denarius. And I want us to get us an idea of what a denarius got you, so I want to cross-reference Matthew 20. And we're familiar with this. It was the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And what happened was there was a landowner in this parable who hired laborers to work his vineyard. And when you look at this parable, there was different groups of workers hired at different parts of the day. So some worked a 12-hour shift from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Some worked a 9-hour shift from 9, to 6, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Some worked a 6-hour shift from 12 to 6, and then some kind of came in kind of last minute and only worked a 3-hour shift from 3 to 6. Now, I'm not going to teach the parable of the laborers, but regardless of what, you know, all of these workers agreed to work for one denarius, whether they worked a 12-hour shift all the way to the other group who worked a three-hour shift. They agreed upon their labor for that day and, and their compensation, and they all got a denarius. And by the way, that picture there, found that on eBay, it's purported to be an actual denarius at the time of Christ. Tiberius Caesar. That was going for a few grand if you're a coin collector. But in this parable, all the laborers, regardless of their shift, agreed to the terms for one denarius. So a denarius was, at least for a laborer in a vineyard, uh, one, uh, one day's wages. So one measure of wheat or three measures of barley equated to a day's wage for a common laborer in Jesus' day. So finally, it's like, okay, I agree with that statement because that's, that teaching's out there and that seems to be consensus. But now I want to look at the last part of verse 6 and then we're going to wrap this up. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Damage is adikio from the root adikos and it means to do wrong or act wickedly. So I'm not a fan of damage also. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Because when we read damage, you can just break something. You know, like you can just damage something, whether it's intentional or unintentional. But the idea of adikio, it's really to injure, but it's to treat unjustly or with contempt. So this sentence can be better rendered, do not treat the oil and the wine unjustly. I think that's a better representation that do not damage the oil and the wine. Do not treat the oil and the wine unjustly. Puts a little different twist to it. But that's the literal meaning of, or the nuance behind the word adikio. I believe this is prophecy. That there's going to come a time when one measure of wheat and three measures of barley will cost one denarius, a day's wage for the common laborer. I believe this is going to happen. Meaning, and I've mentioned this before, I wouldn't be at all surprised. In fact, I expect the denarius to come back and get recirculated as a currency. Because in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, one measure of wheat and three measures of barley will cost one denarius. But denarius has gone away. Well, so did Israel. Very good. But also in today's day and age, and I mentioned this, the crypto age, there is a crypto denarius. So that's a possibility and a probability. But I believe that this is prophecy. And there's going to come a time, there's going to be a mandate to handle the oil and the wine righteously and justly. And then as far as the four commodities in this third seal vision, Remember, there's barley, wheat, oil, and wine. What do these four commodities have in common? And I gave us a clue. The Torah. Sacrifices. Sacrifices. All four commodities are ingredients used in temple offerings and sacrifices. 
And that brings me now to my conclusion. I believe that this third seal prophecy, it directly implicates Israel. If you ask me, I don't believe this prophecy is talking about a global famine. Remember our approach, if a geographic is not given, as is the case in this vision, then by default we're going to focus on Israel. But since we also learn about the black horse, and that also implicates the north country, I believe that this third seal vision implicates Israel and the north country. Israel and ancient Assyria and ancient Babylon. Furthermore, I believe that this third seal vision, it definitely ties in with Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And I want, us, I want to point us to a specific part of that prophecy. So in the 70-week prophecy, sometime after the 69th week, when Messiah Christ is cut off, Daniel wrote in verse 29, verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So remember, zugas or ol can refer to the yoke of following law and works. Law and works would be encompassed in a firm covenant. And by the way, when you look at the original word for firm, it's mighty or strong. So in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, he speaks of someone who's going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. If you ask me, I believe that the four ingredients in this third seal vision, which happens to be the ingredients used to administer the daily sacrifice and grain offerings, is in fact pointing to the reinstitution of the sacrificial system in the not-yet-built third temple. Grain offerings would include wheat and barley. So here's what I believe is a more accurate depiction of this third seal and what it points to. You have the rider on this black horse holding a zugas. And you notice here I put a snip of Strong's definition. Do you notice pair of scales in parens is just one? But the all, other, all the other five mentions yoke. Why did, why did you change? <laughs> why did you make an exception here? When there is no biblical basis for zugas or ol being used as a pair of scales anywhere. This rider was holding a yoke. But here's what I believe it points to. Because I'm pulling in our two plus years of work. Israel will enter into a seven year firm, gabar, strong, mighty covenant. It will include the north country, because that was the black horse's destination, or ancient Assyria, or Babylon. You know what those present countries are? Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. I want to ask us a question. What does ancient Assyria, Babylon, what does Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey have in common? They're all Muslim nations. Which leads to more deduction. I believe this vision of prophecy is speaking of the ultimate betrayal and harlotry that Israel will commit in the end times. Meaning Israel will enter into a holy covenant and become yoked with Middle Eastern nations before they are destroyed. Meaning this prophecy could very well point to this. Here's kind of a picture. See this? They're going to become yoked in covenant. That's where Daniel led us the Old Testament, this vision? I want to make a conjecture. Could this holy covenant also include Roman Catholicism? I'm just going to say yes, if Rome is or was considered part of the North Country in Scripture in the Old Testament, or the country of the North. If the destination of those black horses also included Rome, then I would say, yeah. But if not, no. I would not put him in there. But at a minimum, Israel will become yoked with Islamic nations. And this holy covenant paves the way for Israel to rebuild the third temple construction and begin the daily sacrifices and grain offerings. 
So that better explains how to make sense of the four commodities, wheat, barley, oil, and wine, why that's mentioned in this vision. And this also helps explain why this vision says not to treat unjustly the oil and the wine. An example of this is because why should you not treat unjustly the oil and the wine? Now there is a lot of sacrifices that are stipulated in the Old Testament, but I want to talk about one in particular, the daily sacrifice. In Exodus 29, verse 38, here's what it says there. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar to one-year-old lambs each day continuously. So, if you were to read the entire daily sacrifice, remember, there's other sacrifices that require the same ingredients or similar ingredients. But if you go to Exodus 29 and you read, just to say the daily sacrifice, this is what needs to be done every day. You have to sacrifice, so you have to do one in the morning and one in the evening. You have to sacrifice one lamb in the morning, offer a grain offering, offer a drink offering, and then in the evening, you got to do it again. Offer a lamb, offer a grain offering, and then offer a drink offering all year round. That's a lot of lambs, but that's a lot of commodities needed. Guess what is used for the grain and drink offerings? <laughs> all four. So when you read the Old Testament and it says, take an ephah of fine flour, how did they make flour? Well, guess what's number one? Wheat. You can also do barley, but wheat's more popular. If you're going to offer a grain offering with fine flour, you're going to need a lot of wheat and a lot of barley. And when they do their drink offering or their libation offering of wine, that is needed. But as part of the grain offering, they also do a measure of oil. So they need for them to continue on with the daily sacrifices. These four commodities are quite literally going to be hot commodities. And not only are they going to be hot commodities, they're going to be holy commodities. They're being used in a holy sacrifice. That's why don't treat it unjustly. So in addition to the daily sacrifice of offering two lambs a day, grain offering and a drink offering twice a day, guess what else part of the daily temple duties that needs one of these commodities? Lighting the menorah. Exodus 27, 20. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamb burn continually. If you're going to burn the menorah year-round, 24-7, that's a lot of oil you're going to need. Don't treat it with contempt. It's a hot commodity and it's a holy commodity. So with that, where does this third seal vision fall in this clock? <laughs> Look, it's flowing right there. Judaism in full effect. Checks out. I mean, I, I don't know how this is going to come together. It came together. Right there. First seal, second seal, third seal. And we, said, and we learned that Judaism will be full effect, and that will be towards the end of the age. And then this vision and prophecy will happen. So Denarius, if you ask me, will, will be around. And that's how much it's going to cost. For one measure of wheat or three measures of barley will cost one denarius, which equates to a, full, or a day's work for a common laborer. So in closing, I believe that that is a more biblically-based look into the third seal vision. Again, I don't believe that this vision speaks to a global famine, but rather a unification of a holy covenant the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of the daily sacrifice and grain offerings, and that adequately explains the importance of the four precious commodities mentioned in this vision. And it's pretty neat that this is consistent with our learning in our Daniel series and our learning from the great Olivet, Olivet Discourse series in our clock. At least for me, that helps affirm that we're on the right track as we're navigating forward. 
So that concludes our study and look into the third seal vision. Up next, the fourth seal, and we'll look at the rider on the ashen or pale green horse. I'm looking forward to seeing what we're going to unpack there and wrap up these four horsemen. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. Once again, we see the importance of using Scripture with Scripture when studying the Bible, and in particular, biblical prophecy. Preconceptions and the biased opinion of men can distort the truths that are being clearly communicated through God's Word. So we must always validate teaching and even translations against the original, inerrant biblical text. If you would like to hear any of our past studies leading up to this point, they are all posted for free on our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or simply look us up on Sermon Audio. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.